Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for an older episode of the show. This one originally published on March 10th, 2020, and it's about the biology of The Hobbit. This was part of your 2019-2020 your Hobbit obsession, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it can't yet stemmed from uh, uh, reading The Hobbit to my son. Uh, got me thinking a lot about Middle Earth again. And uh, yeah, it was an excuse to dive into some some really interesting uh, papers that had come out in the past where people take, uh, in this case, the, um, uh, the the diet of the Hobbit, uh, the, the physical activity of the Hobbit, and, uh, and, and, and break it down and see exactly how they're functioning on a, a physiological level. Let's jump into the volcano. You asked me to find the 14th man for your expedition, and I chose Mr. Baggins. Just let anyone say I chose the wrong man or the wrong house, and you can stop at 13 and have all the bad luck you like or go back to digging coal. He scowled so angrily at Glowin that the dwarf huddled back in his chair, and when Bilbo tried to open his mouth to ask a question, he turned and frowned at him and stuck out his bushy eyebrows till Bilbo shut his mouth tight with a snap. That's right. Let's have no more argument. I have chosen Mr. Baggins, and that ought to be enough for all of you. If I say he is a burglar, a burglar he is, or will be when the time comes. There's a lot more to him than you guess, and a deal more than he has any idea of himself. You may possibly all live to thank me yet. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and I guess it's obvious that we're back in Hobbit territory today. That's right. You know, we did a, an episode, I guess a few months back, or several months back, I'm not sure which, uh, where we talked about the One Ring. We contemplated the, the metallurgy of the Rings of Power and the Lord of the Rings. And in this episode, we're going to be uh, returning to Middle-Earth. We're going to look at everyone's favorite hole-dwelling, pipe-smoking, six-meal-a-day-eating humanoids, the Hobbit. So this year I was going back and reading Lord of the Rings and I, I was about halfway through Fellowship of the Ring and, and mm-hmm. a question entered my mind and that question is, are the Hobbits too cute? Are their lives just too quaint and too sweet for this story? And and I thought about it for a minute. I was like, you know, I, I get a little bit uh, bored maybe in some of the early chapters of oh, Fellowship yeah. where it's going on and on about the, the, the quaintness of the Hobbit existence. But then I realized, no, I think it really does work. It uh, It's important for the story because it makes you feel the adventure and the pain of the adventure all the more when you get a full feeling for how cozy and unadventurous they're their pre-quest lives were. Yeah, it's in a fantastic world that just gets more and more fantastic and dark and magical the further out you go from the Shire, the the the, the realm of the Middle Earth that is home to the Hobbits. You know, it, it makes sense to start with something that is quaint, that is normal, that is almost you know painfully uh, British, cozy, and, and yeah. cozy, and, yeah. uh, uh, and not so much cute, I guess, at least not in the original intent. I know, I, I know I've read that Tolkien did not like the idea of illustrations that made the hobbits look too much like children right uh, because they should all look like 
like small little like middle aged or old men, mm-hmm. I imagine. Uh, but yeah, you need you need somebody ordinary to go on these adventures to be challenged by these adventures. Right. You you, you feel the rain and the hardness of the stones under their feet and the threat of the goblin's blade so much more when you've when you've seen the world of tea by the fire. Yeah, and, there, and there's certainly the, uh, the, the species of Middle Earth that we can relate to the most. They yeah. are, uh, they're, really, they're even more human than the humans or the men, as uh, Tolkien calls them, uh, that we encounter in the story. So that's really the main storytelling reason that, that the hobbits are central to the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. But of course, there's more to this as well, uh, more to unwrap. And, and that's why we, we chose that particular passage from The Hobbit to read at the beginning, because in this particular section, uh, basically Gandalf the Grey, a uh, globetrotting wizard that he is, is injecting himself into dwarven politics, uh, essentially to rid the world of the, the last evil dragon so that it can't aid the coming war with with Sauron, uh, you know it's um, you know it's, it's uh, in a way it's kind of like shady politics, I guess. But it's it's it serves the, yeah, yeah. But it, it, it's it serves a greater good. And and but Gandalf is getting a bit frustrated because he's he's helping the dwarves out. He's enabling this mission uh, to to retake their mountain from smog. And they don't want to, to have thirteen dwarves go on a trip. That's unlucky. They need another person. And Gandalf says, "Here you go. Here is a Hobbit. Here is Bilbo. He's the fellow you need. He's a burglar. You're gonna." need a burglar. And of course, the whole time, uh, Bilbo's like, I can't go on an adventure. I can't do that. I don't have any of these skills. And the dwarves are agreeing with him. And they're saying, oh, he's useless. Let's not take him. Don't you have something else? Yeah, let's just eat all his food and move on. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it, you, it, it's easy to... to f- understand the criticism because Bilbo uh, does seem rather useless and he, he remains uh, rather useless feeling for a large portion of the book. Uh, so it raises the question, is there something about the Hobbit? Is there something about this species that that, that is really special? Is there Hobbit exceptionalism that might be exploited and, and that, that is ultimately what Gandalf is leaning on? That there's something special about the Hobbits that will help enable, you know, first of all, victory in this mission to retake the Lonely Mountain, and then ultimately in the the, the quest of the ring uh, that we encounter in the Lord of the Rings. You know, despite how over the course of the Lord of the Rings, we see several different hobbits uh, in different ways at different times being seduced by the power of the ring, it does seem like hobbits more than other creatures are somewhat resistant to it. Like they, they, they are somehow able to put up more of a fight to be less enticed by the promises of power and glory that the ring in, entails. Yeah, perhaps leaning into their inherent quaintness, right? I yeah. mean, ultimately, all any hobbit wants is a nice hobbit hole to live in, and a, a mug of ale, and you know, some some mushrooms and eggs and bacon for for one of their many meals. I mean, almost any time a, a man, a human, gets his hands on the ring, he's like, "Oh, great, yes." <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're, we'll slow down for a second here because I'm, there may be some people out there. I, I, I find it hard to believe, but there may be some people who don't know what a hobbit is. We well, just to, to drive it home here. The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, these books are, are, are fantasy novels full of elves and goblins, dragons, uh, you know, demonic balrogs, uh, uh, half-living ring wraiths, and various demigods and wizards. But then we also have the quaint hobbits. And typically, they fit the following profile. They are, quote, a little people about half our height. They walk around barefooted and boast a generous helping of hair atop each foot. I, I was to understand they had hair underneath their feet. Is that not right? 
I think you're right as well. We just the, the illustrations rarely show that that uh, the bottom of the foot uh, hair. I think that was my understanding was that they're, they're very um, they're actually good as burglars because they're very light of step and their footfalls are quiet, cushioned mm. by this hair. They're also known for their hobbit holes. These are fashionable underground homes, but they they don't always reside in these, despite their their overall subterranean tendencies and a likely history of burrow habitation. <laughs> and uh, oh, a big one, of course, is their hunger, their uh, their appetite. Uh, they require some six meals a day. Yeah. Well, what about second breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> and then they're also at least very good at hiding, which can be extrapolated into a skill of burglary. And I guess that's, that's one argument for what Gandalf is saying. Like, here is a species that's naturally good at hiding. So given time, by the time you get to the Lonely Mountain, Bilbo will either be dead or very good <laughs> at adventuring in a, like, in a stealthy way. He will have leveled up appropriately. But another, another way to look at it is to to look at the specific biological adaptations of a hypothetical uh, hobbit species. And so that's what we're going to largely focus on in this episode. And uh, the beautiful thing is that we don't have to just make all of this up on our own. Uh, There are a handful of papers that we've been able to refer to, generally of the tongue-in-cheek variety. So we're not talking like hard, serious, scientific, or medical contemplation. But, but still, they do get quantitative about yeah, it. They yeah, they do get quantitative, and they get into the science of like, all right, let's talk about hobbits. Let's talk about how much they eat. Would they be healthy? Would they be actually capable of walking across the continent with a bunch of adventurers? Uh, you know, would, would, are they truly this, this solid investment that Gandalf the Grey sees? That's a mighty good question. I mean, not to, to cast any doubt on Gandalf the Grey's, um, uh, um, uh, you know, mindset here. Uh, you know, clearly, <laughs> great wizard. We'd love to have him on the show sometime for an interview. But uh, <laughs> tune into our new podcast series, Gandalf Mindset. Yes, it's <laughs> where you learn wizard mindset. To, wizard mindset. To <laughs> There's probably a book about that. Um, be, I, Don't let them steal your staff. Six easy steps to wizard dominance. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would not be surprised if, if to find out that a book like that existed. All right. Well, let's start with the with the obvious, uh, the dietary constraints of the Hobbit. Now, this is going to be one of the the main differences you would notice in like a physical energy kind of situation with the Hobbits because they never stop eating. That's one of the things that is driven home again and again in the books. It's always time for a meal. Yeah, yeah. And they plus they tend to be a little bit portly, leading many a non halfling to question their sedentary lifestyle and, and 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 as well as their insistence on those six daily meals because they go with breakfast. Second breakfast, eleven seas, luncheon, afternoon tea, dinner, and supper. How is dinner different from supper? <laughs> yeah, th- that one was the hardest for me to figure out because I was like, all right, let me look at my own, you know, dietary uh, requirements and my mm-hmm. schedule, and I and I realize, okay, I usually like breakfast for me is like smoothie and coffee, and then second breakfast is like more coffee and like an apple or something later on, and then 11 Z's, I have been known to have like a half a peanut butter sandwich, perhaps with more coffee, and then I have actual lunch, and then I don't have afternoon tea, but I generally have more coffee and perhaps another apple, and then dinner, I have an evening meal, but supper, I can't... I can't really come up with a, a you know a possibility for that in my life. Like unless you count an after dinner drink or a you know a, a late night snack as a meal, and I don't think we were talking about that with hobbits. I think for each of these, with the possible exception of the afternoon tea, we're talking about a, a full blown meal. Well, you're closer to hobbit scheduling than a lot of people, though. It sounds like you. you it sounds like you kind of graze. Yeah, I mean, especially if I'm working from home and it's cold out, then it's mm-hmm. just you know wandering around trying to figure out what I can smear peanut butter on. Um, 
that's when it's good to get out of the house. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's hard to figure out how that uh, uh, what, what the difference between uh, supper uh, and dinner would be for the, for the Hobbit. And clearly, it points towards just uh, uh, the fact that they they need more to eat. They have just higher dietary requirements uh, than a mere human or some other species. So here's the question: Based on real world biology, is this sort of diet reasonable for a creature of the Hobbit stature? Hmm. And unfortunately, uh, we have a paper to refer to. In 2015, uh, Krisho Manoharan and Sky Rossetti of the University of Leicester Center for Interdisciplinary <laughs> Science weighed in on the issue in their paper, Modeling the BMR of Species in Middle-Earth. Okay. So the BMR in question, this is the base metabolic rate. This is the number of calories that our bodies, our very cells, need in order to function well. And the base part of it would be this is not including whatever extra stuff you're doing. This is just mm-hmm. like to stay alive. Right. Yeah. This is not just like extracurricular eating, the wandering around the house looking for peanut butter sort of thing. Uh, so in other words, yeah, the researchers set out to gauge the amount of energy that a hobbit's body needs to function at rest. And they did this not only for the hobbits of Middle Earth, but also for the fair elves. Okay. They did this by modeling each fictional race as an actual mammalian Earth species. The European roe deer stood in for forest-dwelling elves, and the hobbit, being a burrowing, hole-dwelling people, was stuck with the southwestern pygmy possum. (laughs) And this is what they figured out. Uh, They decided that uh, for a hobbit uh, BMR, we're looking at uh, 1,818.7 kilocalories every day. This compared to 1,702.2 kilocalories every six days for humans, or or men in Middle-earth, as they're called. And then for elves, we're looking at 1,416.5 kilocalories. As such, they figure the average hobbit would require some 6.7 meals per day. And uh, indeed, that's in keeping with the higher energy demands for smaller birds and mammals. Now, you might think, why would smaller animals on average have greater relative food requirements, right? Like, wouldn't it be bigger animals that would have greater relative food requirements? Mm -hmm. Well, on average, smaller animals do tend to have faster metabolisms. There's, you know, individual variation. But on average, the smaller you are, probably the more energy you burn proportional to your body mass. Why would this be? One major reason is thermoregulation. So a major part of what chemical energy from food does in metabolism is keep the body warm. Uh, Heat loss from an organism is a function of its surface area. So in the past, we've talked about, you know, one reason for the biological implausibility of like kaiju-sized animals like King Kong is that they would probably have trouble cooling their bodies. They're, They're too big. They've got too much volume and not enough surface area for heat to escape through. Hmm. Even worse if you happen to be a giant fire-breathing dragon like smog, right? Exactly. Uh, smaller animals, though, would have exactly the opposite problem, right? Smaller animals have a greater surface area to volume ratio, meaning they lose heat faster than larger animals. Think of the way that a smaller ice cube melts faster than a bigger one. Hmm. Uh, so they often have to eat a lot more relative to their body weight to maintain a stable body temperature. Uh, some very small animals have just unbelievable metabolic requirements and can eat huge amounts of food relative to their bodies. I was reading a good Nat Geo article about this by Liz Langley, and uh, it made an interesting point of comparison. So it brings up the biggest animal on the earth, the blue whale. 
The blue whale, on average, eats about four tons of krill every day, and that is definitely a lot of food, or it sounds like a lot, but the blue whale has a body mass of around 200 tons. So on average, the whale is only eating about 2% worth of its body weight every 24 hours. Meanwhile, the pygmy shrew of Britain, which only weighs about an ounce, can eat about 125% of its body weight per day. Oh, wow. So think about this. If like a 160-pound human ate 125% of their body weight every day, this would be about 200 pounds <laughs> worth of food. I did some math, and if it was all Big Macs, that's about 376 Big Macs a day. Oh, wow. Just spread out before you. That's that's something. Uh, the, the, but you may divide it into six meals. I don't well, know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the shrew factoid reminds me of, uh, I, I imagine you've seen this because it was on MST3K back in the day. They did a, Attack of the Killer Shrews, mm-hmm. terrible black and white movie. But I think it was like dogs with carpet draped over yes, them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but fun in a way because I think they, they tried. So basically the, the situation was, hey, shrews are these ravenous creatures, but thankfully they're small. If they ever got big, they would be the most dangerous predator on the planet. <laughs> And then, lo and behold, that's what happens in this movie. Oh, that's a great premise, yeah. except it, it, it doesn't it, work. <laughs> it doesn't work because if they got bigger, they wouldn't have the same surface-to-volume problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, that, that reminded me of, of that film. I think they end up, like, building a tank uh, mm-hmm. out of, like, stuff in their cabin to then survive the, the shoes. It's a, it's a terrible movie, but way better than it should be. One of the things I remember about it is the way that, like, the dogs that they've got dressed up to be the shrews really act like dogs. So yeah. you just see them kind of, like, trotting around at people like dogs do, and it's cute. <laughs> they're supposed to be these menacing monsters, yes. but, like, they're clearly happy to see the people on set. And it's... It's not just that, like this one species, uh, the uh, pygmy shrew of Britain is is like you know freakish. Like even the common shrew needs to eat every two to three hours and has to consume an average of like ninety percent of its body weight every day. So th- mm. this is fairly common among very small organisms. They they need to eat a lot of food relative to their body size. And again, that's just the base metabolic rate. That's not to mention other necessary expenditures for say creatures that engage in very energy intensive activities. One great example here is hummingbirds. Oh, yes. So they're very small. They have big thermoregulation requirements, but they also have huge caloric requirements from physical activity. They've got to stay in the air. I mean, think about how much energy it takes to keep vehicles in the air. Uh, So they use these rapid wing beats that require their heart to beat about 1,200 times a minute, maybe like 20 beats per second sometimes. That's that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. So they they are just constantly having to feed. Right. And then if they can't if you have it's like I, I imagine most uh, if you have seen uh, the, the various uh, documentaries that show how they like in some cases they'll just have to like shut their bodies down they have to go in a kind of suspended animation yeah uh, at times yeah but on an average day a hummingbird will often have to eat roughly twice its body weight in nectar mm-hmm. uh, so I was trying to think would hobbits have any such requirements based on activity you can see why having smaller bodies they'd have a higher surface uh, area to volume ratio okay but I can't really think of any activities that are along the lines of the hummingbirds. I, I'm not sure how much energy it takes to smoke pipe weed or to like eat tea cakes <laughs> and gossip about other families, but 
Maybe there's something going on there. I wonder if blowing rings of pipeweed smoke might actually be a highly energy-intensive activity. Well, some of them are farmers. You do remember Farmer Maggot. Okay, um, so that's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, so a lot of work goes into that. And then there there are at least tales of of warring hobbits in the past. There were, I forget which one it was that uh, is said to have actually ridden a horse and, and battled a goblin in a, in a past skirmish. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there are exceptions. But for the most part, the typical hobbit life that one envisions doesn't a lot of sitting around and reflecting. I guess another option is what if there's something going on in the hobbit brain that makes their, their nervous system very energy uh, intensive? Oh. Yeah, so maybe they're like uh, secret mentats, like the hobbit, the, the fact that they can, you know, remember so much gossip about the other families in the Shire, or maybe it takes a huge amount of mental energy to constantly resist the call to adventure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or they, they do worry a lot. Like, well, what if they're, they're, they're high energy? Energy, cognitive uh, powers are used exclusively to worrying about where their next meal is going to come from and, and, uh, and, and how tiresome the journey is. All right, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, uh, we're going to continue this discussion and we're going to start talking about some, uh, some elven bread. All right, we're back. So there's an interesting follow-up to this article uh, we were talking about with the, the base uh, metabolic rate. Again, that was from the uh, authors uh, Krisho Manaharan and Sky Rossetti. Well, they followed it up with another paper, Simply Walking into Mordor, <laughs> How Much Limbus Would the Fellowship Have Needed? So Limbus, as you might remember, is the special travel bread of the elves that helps sustain our adventurers. It's wrapped in leaves. It's brown on the outside and sweet and white on the inside. And it, and it never spoils. It's just always perfect and, I don't know, maybe even a little bit warm. Yeah. Well, it's Galadriel that gives them the Limbus, right? I think so, yeah. yes. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's supposed to be great stuff. I always imagine it as being like a scone, you know, like a really good scone. Like they're just living exclusively off scones on this journey. So it becomes a, a, one of the, the key provisions that they eat a lot on, these, on, on the, the journey in The Lord of the Rings. So naturally, the authors wanted to know how much of this one would need to sustain all nine members of the Fellowship of the Ring on a 92-day quest across the continent. Well, they concluded that a single hobbit would require 76 pieces of elven limbus bread to march uh, all the way to Mount Doom. That amount, uh, that's 76 pieces of limbus compared with 90 for a dwarf, 60 for an elf, and 71 for humans. As such, the nine members of the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, they concluded, would require 675 pieces of Limbus, with 304 pieces allotted to the four Hobbit members. Uh, Gimli alone would need 99 pieces of Limbus. Well, now I know they didn't get that much Limbus. <laughs> I think they, they would have said something. I remember they talk about how, you know, you eat one bite of Limbus and you're full for, you know, a while. Yeah, that's the other thing. It is it is magic. Right. Uh, and th- that's the underlying uh, footnote on all of these discussions, right? Uh, it is ultimately magical bread and so forth. Therefore, it has its own rules. But uh, still, it, it's, it's, this is, it's, a neat, uh, it's a neat consideration here. Now, of course, it's probably a little bit dry. I always imagine it being a Ugh, bit dry. Yeah. So you're going to need something to wash it all down with. You're going to need some some water. And here, according to uh, yet another paper, uh, this time from Catherine Barrage, the conclusion is that they wouldn't have been able to carry all of their water with them on the journey. Uh, She points out that there's no agreed-upon method to calculate water requirements for adult humans, but surface area of the individual is typically invoked. And she concludes that one hobbit would have 
have required 2.4 liters per day. And when you extrapolate that to the, all the days of the journey, you're encountering a, a, an amount of water that would be impossible for a hobbit to carry for itself. Now, you know, aside from Sam mentioning some concern over water on their travels, I don't remember them really detailing a lot of their woes uh, getting uh, potable waters because I guess surely there would have been some other ways to get drinking water on the way, like when they you know visited this place or another, or occasionally there's going to be a stream of, of moving water that they can trust. I don't recall them ever being concerned about like getting Giardia from drinking water <laughs> out of the stream or something. Yeah, it would have been a different book if uh, all the hobbits just constantly had dysentery yeah. the whole way to Mordor. Lord of the Diarrhea. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so here's a here's here's another fun wrinkle in all of this. Uh, Tolkien writes, Meals didn't come quite as often as Bilbo would have liked them, but still he began to feel that adventures were not so bad after all. So Bilbo continually complains about being hungry and tired, but he makes do, and he digs into a wide variety of foods during the journey. Uh, this, is, this is one of the pleasures of a lot of books, really, but uh, especially in The Hobbit, it's like all these foods that he encounters, they're not that diverse, but they're, but every, he eats a lot of interesting things, you know, like they meet up with uh, a vegetarian werebear and he serves them cream and honey, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Bjorn, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or, um, you know, or they're, or they're scavenging sorrel and berries in the mountain wilds and then making do with that, you know, so he may have wanted bacon and eggs and mushrooms like uh, any normal Hobbit of, of taste and means, but Baked he was... Beans, of course, right? <laughs> but he was able to get by on all of these various foods. So I think we can cl- conclude from that possibly that, you know, hobbits, like other highly adaptive organisms, benefit from a varied omnivorous diet. So even though they require uh, quite a few calories, they're able to get them in a variety of ways. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded uh, of, of the primal state to which we see the hobbit Smeagol reduced in Lord of the Rings. Smeagol, a.k.a. Uh, 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 Gollum. You know, he's this sneaky, opportunistic creature that hunts, that scavenge, scavenges. He'll eat anything he can get his hands on, uh, even though he prefers meat. Yeah, he well, he likes fish. He, he in the movies, at least, I don't recall this scene in the books, but he, he uh, you know, what's taters precious? He does not seem to be a fan of uh, the carbs. He could uh-huh. be what happens to a hobbit on the paleo diet. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course, one thing we have to remember about about Smeagol is that he's been living underground for a long time, and he's basically evolved into this more subterranean form. And he's eating. He he has the sort of diet you would expect from uh, like a, a mostly subterranean. Iranian uh, creature, like he's having to eat just a bunch of fish, uh, you know, eyeless fish, whatever you can find, the occasional goblin mm. that he can uh, murder in a passageway. But he does have that beach bod. <laughs> he is very skinny relative to the other hobbits. It's true. He's, he's in some ways he's in better shape, um, and of course he has this one fitness secret that drives people crazy, and then of course it's the one ring. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nutritionists hate him. Click here to find his one secret. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's often overlooked the the fitness advantages of the of the One Ring and the various rings of power because the Nazgul were all in pretty good shape as well. Uh, you know, regardless of their um, their possibly uh, you know incorporeal form and uh, unliving status and soulless nature. Now, to speak more about the biological effects of the One Ring, that reminds me. Uh, I, I was thinking about how the Hobbit fits into theories about basal metabolic rate versus lifespan because. Ah. We 
know the ring does something to lifespan. Hobbits live a long time. Uh, Bilbo Baggins lived to the old age of 131, but that is apparently due to the unnatural life-extending powers of the One Ring, right? That's one of the things the ring supposedly does. It, yeah. it helps you live a long time or maybe even indefinitely if you never lose it, though that your life becomes reduced to a uh, hollow echo of what it once was. Right, and as we mentioned in the last episode about the, the ring, the ring will lose you uh, if it no longer needs you. So uh, basically, it just has the option of keeping its host alive for an extended period of time if it if it aids the ring. Right. But even without the ring, hobbits seem to live for a long time. Uh, the ringless hobbit Old Took lived to the ripe old age of 130, just one year less than Bilbo, without any kind of special magic that we know of. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, it's normal for hobbits to live to about 100. Uh, if, if the hobbit were a real species on Earth, they would be toward the longest end of the lifespan spectrum. I I think it's said at some point in Lord of the Rings that hobbits tend to come of age in their 30s. So you might say, I don't know what that, that's like puberty or something for hobbits. So, so not just like actually get their life together in their thirties, no. but actually like go through puberty at that point. Well, I, I don't know. I okay. mean, he doesn't say puberty. That's when they come of age. I assume that's what that means, or okay. something like it. The the tweens of the Hobbit world are in their twenties, probably. But the long lifespan of hobbits is another place where you might look at The Hobbit and say, okay, this seems to conflict with stuff we know about uh, Earth biology. Because when you look at the animals on Earth, especially you look at the mammals, it can certainly seem like the longest lived animals tend to be large and the small ones tend to have short lives. Like, you know, mice and rats can live for just a couple of years. Uh, Whales can live for a very, very long time. Uh, If you expand that to vertebrates uh, more generally, you know, I think the longest lived vertebrate that I know of is the Greenland shark, uh, which mm-hmm. can live hundreds of years. Yeah, it was something like what 400 years, uh, I think, was a, an estimate on, on one recently. Yeah, but it tends to be a little bit larger. In the 20th century, actually, there was a popular theory in biology that made this connection. It connected aging and lifespan to metabolism. Uh, it was known as the rate of living theory. And essentially, it said that animals with a slower metabolism that burn energy more slowly will tend to live longer because expending energy literally ages you. Uh, So animals with higher dietary requirements, faster heart rates, faster metabolism, etc. will have shorter lives under this hypothesis. There are even some humans who uh, who seem to uh, at least intuitively believe some version of this theory. Yes, I've uh, I, I've seen them quoted on this, indeed. Uh, but uh, but a side effect of this, of course, would be that animals with smaller bodies, because they tend to have faster metabolisms, like we were talking about earlier, will also, on average, have shorter lives. And so, at a glance, that does seem to line up with the animal world, right? Uh, So this theory first proposed in the early 1920s is often associated primarily with early work done by an American biologist named Raymond Pearl. And it really did seem plausible for a while, but eventually it was undercut by evidence. Uh, So you had early studies of animal lifespans that sort of seemed to support it. But then later studies with more detailed data sets and better analysis didn't actually find a broad correlation between metabolism and lifespan. Uh, For example, birds 
tend to have higher metabolisms than than mammals of about the same size, yet on average, the birds tend to live longer. So even though we can find a lot of examples of smaller animals that have short lives and larger animals that have long lives, it turns out the correlation doesn't hold up the better your analysis is. Uh, I was reading about another study that undercut the, the rate of living hypothesis by looking at metabolic manipulations within the same species. So uh, the very short version is you have rats in two different conditions. One set of rats lives in a world of 22 degrees Celsius or 71 degrees Fahrenheit, the nice warm world. And then there's another group of rats that lives at 10 degrees Celsius or 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So obviously the group living in colder conditions has to burn more energy to maintain body temperature. So by rate of living logic, you would expect them to die younger, but they didn't. The study found that the the uh, rodents in the two conditions lived the same average lifespan. So the rate of living hypothesis is no longer thought to be correct, and it represents no threat whatsoever to the plausibility of hobbits. Excellent. <laughs> All right. On that note, we're going to take one more break. Uh, and, and hopefully there'll be an ad for Limbus in here. We've been trying to get Limbus as a sponsor for a while, but, uh, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, anyway, one more break, and then we'll be right back. All right, we're back. You know what's great is dipping your Limbus in a nice bowl of brown. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I always figured it was it's just dessert. Like, it's dessert all the time. Uh, Maybe they, they just come. Well, that, I read it originally as a kid. So at the time, I'm like, yeah, it's like this. It's like shortbread. All, the, all day, I've, every I've day. I've never been into shortbread. <laughs> I don't even like it as dessert. Uh, well, you know, you're not a hobbit. They, they would, maybe they're more into it. Or elves. Maybe the elves themselves have, uh, uh, you know, different tolerance for sweets. Uh, what's the Middle Earth species that really likes, like, pickles? I think that's, that's <laughs> oh, my that's I think it's my probably people. hobbits again. I feel like hobbits oh, okay. would be totally into pickles. Okay. I don't remember specifically if, if there was ever mention of, of uh, hobbits eating pickles, but... I bet they like pickles. Dude, you should try dwarven century eggs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, if we're to entertain the idea that hobbits as a species factor so heavily into the struggle for Middle Earth, uh, based in part on their biology, it, it raises this question. How suited are the various other species or, or races, as they're sometimes called, especially due to, uh, you know, this is another fantasy as well. Like in Dungeons and Dragons, you talk about the different races, even though you're essentially talking about different species. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, how do these other various species uh, stack up in the struggle for global dominance just based on their biology? And it's interesting to think about this because while Homo sapiens came into contact with the likes of the Neanderthals, Middle Earth is an entirely different situation because you have multiple species of similar cognitive and technological abilities coming into contact with each other, warring against each other, forming factions. And, and granted, some of the players involved are magical beings, others are artificial creations, and others still are essentially demigods. But we're, we're talking a world full of humans, elves, dwarfs, hobbits, goblins, orcs, trolls, giants, dragons, and then various animals with human-level intelligence, such as the, the eagles, just to name a few. Right. 
The deciding factor, however, might just come down to sunlight. What? Yeah, which, which isn't that surprising, right? Because sunlight is good, darkness bad. This is the basic uh, dichotomy of, uh, of, our, of our fantasy and our myth-making. Okay. But, uh, but, but let's th- think back to The Hobbit's omnivorous diet and its subterranean tendencies. Uh, because uh, I want to talk uh, briefly about a fun little paper that you can find in full in PDF form uh, on, online if you want to read it for yourself by Dr. Joseph A. Hopkinson and, and his son, Nicholas S. Hopkinson. Uh, and this was published in the Medical Journal of Australia paper, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Deficiency. <laughs> And uh, and the, the, what they uh, end up arguing is that the, their varied diet, the varied diet of the Hobbit, um, would be key to elevating their vitamin D levels. Hmm. So vitamin D, uh, as I think we've discussed in the show before, is is crucial for skeletal health and the immune system with defi- deficiency symptoms ranging from stuff like depression and weakness to increased bone fragility. Uh, none of those are things you want while adventuring on a great quest to save the world, right? Mm-hmm. Or to conquer it, <laughs> either way you want to want to look at it. You don't want to be depressed and weak and possibly more susceptible to bone breaks. Now, uh, a, a note here, oily fish are a great place to get your vitamin D if you're not getting it from the sun, so advantage to Smeagol here. Oh, that's right. He loves them wriggling, yeah. yeah. But I, I don't know. Do we see him eating oily fish? Does, is he getting well, his hands I'm not on, sure sardi- on that. sardines I'm not sure on and that. all that? I don't know how oily the subterranean fish of uh, the Misty Mountains happen to be. But, but maybe he's getting the occasional, like, tin of sardines from the goblins. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, he loves a good mahi-mahi. <laughs> so, anyway, Bilbo's diverse diet and willingness to travel long distances in, in the sun, according to the, uh, the Hopkinsons, not only boosts his vitamin D intake, but also makes the Hobbit species one of Middle Earth's top vitamin D consumers. Hmm. So they assigned major Middle Earth species and individuals a vitamin D score between zero and four. Uh, hobbits, men, and high elves, they top the list. They, they get fours across the board. Dwarves scored a three. Gollum score, or Smeagol scored a low one, and then the evil species of Middle Earth—the dragons, the goblins, and the trolls—and I'm assuming they're they're uh, they're putting the orcs in with the goblins here, since they're essentially the, the same species. All of them scored zeros, right? Because these are basically entirely indoor, underground species, right? Right, or they live in in darkness and read. I mean, Mordor itself, right, is yeah. is often depicted and described as being like clothed, uh, uh, you know, shielded from the sun by the volcanic ashes of Mount Doom. Right, it is a realm of darkness. Yeah, I know Tolkien said that he did not write these books as allegory, but uh, yeah, I wonder if. Was he really just trying to get his kids to go outside? So he's like, you know, you live your whole life inside, you become a bad goblin like me. Well, yeah, I mean, it's I, I, I mean that critique has been applied to his work before, right? The idea that like Mordor is industrialism and uh, and modernity, and and the the Shire is the uh, you know is the, the rural countryside and traditional ways of England, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, moral attributes and martial prowess are also going to play a factor, they argue, but they think that vitamin D consumption might be a key predictor for victory in Middle Earth. (laughs) 
And, uh, and it's worth noting that Dr. Hopkinson uh, knew what he, knows what he's talking about with vitamin D. He previously studied the effects of vitamin D in people with lung disease. Uh, as a result, he's not a fan of all the smoking that goes on, especially um, uh, for, uh, with the hobbits and uh, the wizarding folk like Gandalf. Uh, says that would not be be good for their overall health. Uh, but still, no. Just, wait a minute. I was reading. According to Sauron, uh, smoking <laughs> has not been definitively linked with any negative health effects. Oh yeah, if, yeah. If you can trust Sauron on that one. Um, so anyway, the why hob- would he lie? <laughs> why would he lie? He's the great deceiver, right? <laughs> You're forgetting his prior forms. You're only thinking about the, the all-seeing eye, and you think that just because he has an all-seeing eye, he's privy to all truth, uh, but he's still a liar. Wormtongue said it, too. He said <laughs> that this is anti-pipeweed alarmism. <laughs> all right, so taking all of this into account, we can look at The Hobbit, and we say The Hobbit ultimately offers us a high-metabolism creature with a varied diet, able to march across Middle-earth's varied ecosystems and eat whatever they can find uh, within you know reason uh, in order to maintain their vitamin D levels and therefore contribute to the victory of good over evil in Middle Earth. I buy it. <laughs> now, Robert, I've got to ask, what, yes. what got you looking for Hobbit papers? I know somehow you must have set out on this journey. Well, this this happens a lot where something will enter my, my head and I'll think, well, uh, let's see if there are papers about the Lord of the Rings. Let's see if people <laughs> are mentioning, uh, you know, because sometimes it's you'll find examples where where uh, authors of even very, very serious uh, scientific papers will just at least for fun reference, say, a particular myth or a particular uh, you know, the line from Shakespeare. So sometimes you have like that level of treatment mm-hmm. or it's a, a pun in the title of uh, fr- that's frequently used in the title of a scientific study. But but then you have these th- this level of study as well, which which I think is great. You know, v- again, very tongue in cheek. All of these were written, at least in part, to entertain. Uh, and uh, the vitamin D paper speci- especially has like a fun little illustration in it as well. So it was very much I think it was part of like a Christmas uh, special that they put out where they have a lot of uh, tongue in cheek papers. Uh, but it's it's also I, I think these are all fun because especially for a show like ours we might normally not really discuss vitamin D mm-hmm. uh, deficiency on the show uh, at length but this gives us a reason to get into it and and kind of a an angle that makes it more interesting than it might otherwise be and it's of course it's a it's an important topic as well right because it comes down to human health like one of the one of the things that uh, the Hopkinsons argue in, in their paper is that you know ultimately if we're to draw some sort of conclusion from all of this it's that we all need to uh, consider having a more varied diet and uh, getting out in the sun um, you know with proper protection of course if uh, you know, concerning the, the rays of the sun but you know get your vitamin D have a varied diet and stay active Active, and uh, it's going to benefit you. And also stay away from that uh, those Hobbit pipes and those, those wizarding pipes because it's no good for you. But this is just one. This is just one angle on uh, Middle Earth and science. I'm sure there are numerous other articles out there that 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 go after a different angle of Tolkien's work and uh, work some science on it. So maybe we'll be able to come back in a future episode and discuss some other corner of Middle Earth. I had the idea that we could do an episode about ints. I'm not sure what the, we, we'd figure it out. Oh, but no, you'd have could, to play the episode at half speed. Unfortunately, we could totally do an episode on ints, getting into the like the movements of plants and uh-huh. uh, uh, you know the trees that quote unquote walk. Uh, I mean, there are examples that are that are pretty fascinating. And and really, when you start when you essentially consider that that plants are are living at this different time frame than uh, this, t- this different rate uh, than animals. 
levels. You know, when you start uh, you know speeding things up, you you see some amazing uh, movements on the part of uh, of trees and uh, and vines and so forth. So I think there would be something to discuss with Ents if we wanted to come back to that, or or getting into the whole. In, in a way, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to cover this in an episode on ENS. This really deserves its own episode. But just the idea of plant intelligence, plant communication, there's some pretty fascinating theories out there, uh, especially on plant communication. That's a, that is a topic I'd like to come back to. You know, I've thought before, like, what types of plants would evolve intelligence if they ever did? And I, I think maybe it would have to be carnivorous plants, right? Like Venus flytraps, mm-hmm. because they'd have, they have a movement mechanism. The movement mechanism is something that can be exploited over time in evolution as a manipulation mechanism, which right. in turn maybe prioritizes uh, uh, strategies for manipulation of objects. Yeah. There you go. It basically writes itself. Yeah, we'll have to come back and talk about ints sometime. All right. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, we recommend you do so. Uh, again, we did a previous episode titled The One Ring that gets into metallurgy and what, and basically asking the question, what could the one ring have potentially been made of if it were to have the various attributes that are described in the, the books and the films? Uh, it's a, a fun a fun back and forth. So check that one out if you want. If you want to find that episode or any episode, you can go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com and that will shoot you over to the iHeart listing for our show, but you can find Stuff to Blow Your Mind wherever you get your podcast, wherever that happens to be. Just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.